Hello, everyone, and welcome to this first of the year edition of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. I'll be coming at you here on WSOE 89.3 FM, Elon Burlington, every Friday from 6 to 7 p.m. And if you're a listener existing already from Apple Podcasts or from podcast.com, expect episodes every Friday night around 7 o'clock or so. Let's just get the volume up on this mic a little bit, and then we'll get the show going. There we go. All right. So, 6 to 7 p.m. here every Friday. Wanted to kick off the show this week real quick. Thursday Night Football last night. The return of the typical not-so-great Thursday night games. Bucks over the Panthers 20-14 to 14 last night. One thing that I wanted to talk about, well, a couple things with this game, but the first thing I wanted to talk about was, is... It time to say that Chris Godwin may be better than Mike Evans. Now, based off of the actual stat line that came out, you know, Evans had a opportunity for a touchdown that, that did not um that did not follow through. Uh he looks still a little bit banged up. Similar amount of air yards, similar amount of targets, but Chris Godwin in this offense with Bruce Arians running the show. I kind of, in a fantasy perspective, Chris Godwin by far has been fantastic both weeks. But it's fair to say, you know, we have to see Evans healthy and the air yards and uh, targets are similar. But I think there's a legitimate argument to be made through these two weeks that, hey, maybe Chris Godwin is better or slightly better than Mike Evans is at this point. Uh, Panther side of this, Cam Newton. Uh, he looked, he was, there's no way that he could have been healthy, fully healthy playing that game last night. He was ineffective, looked hurt, uh, couldn't move, uh, wasn't explosive, wasn't the same, uh, electric Cam Newton that we've seen in the past, did not look like the same player. And in, and even with seeing that they ran the offense through him rather than Christian McCaffrey, who they ran the offense through last week. And I think it's clear, looking at the difference between week one and week two, this offense has to run through Christian McCaffrey. And when McCaffrey was involved yesterday, he only caught the ball twice. A lot of his carries were um, up the middle, between the tackles. That's not the most efficient use of Christian McCaffrey. You want him to catch balls in space, to be um, having the ball in his hands in space. He can get yards after first contact, yards after the catch. Two catches all game. Last week he caught ten balls. You got to be throwing the ball to him, eight to ten targets a game. You got to be putting him in space and allowing him to make plays. Running the offense through Cam Newton and running McCaffrey between the tackles—that's not going to get this offense anywhere. Just like it didn't get them anywhere last night. And then Jameis Winston—they pulled out the W. We we already knew this, but Jameis Winston is what he is at this point. Not the greatest pocket presence. Not very accurate. Not consistent. The Bucks really had no choice as far as finding a replacement that's better than him for this year. He's clearly not a long-term franchise answer. We've known that. But they pulled out the W, but not an impressive outing from Jameis Winston as well. Now, before I transition, just quick, uh, just ooh, words, just quickly going through the weekend NFL picks for this weekend. Just game by game, I'm going to list out who I think is going to win 
every single game for this weekend. Uh, I think the Ravens, the Chargers, the Titans. The Titans, by the way, that's a team I look at as an AFC wildcard team. Both sides of the ball, they are loaded with talent. Good offensive line. Taylor Lewan will come back. Delaney Walker is back. A.J. Brown, who they picked in the second round, looks incredible. Adam Humphreys, Corey Davis. Uh, look on the defensive side of the ball. Drell Casey, Harold Landry, Rashawn Evans, Logan Ryan, Malcolm Butler, one of the best safeties in the league, and Kevin Byard. This is a team on both sides of the ball. Yeah, the quarterback play is weak. Both sides of the ball, there is a lot of talent, and they went 9-7 last year. I like the Titans as a wildcard team making the playoffs this year. There's too much talent on both sides of the ball for them to not end up becoming a playoff team. I really, really like the team that they have out there. A.J. Brown looks like a beast um, after that first week. I'm excited to see what he does this week. Back to my winners for this week, the Ravens, the Chargers, said the Titans, I think the Niners, the Texans, the Vikings, the Cowboys, the Seahawks, the Bills, Patriots, Chiefs, Saints, Bears, Eagles, and Browns. Those are all the teams I think are getting the W this week. Now, one quick aside I wanted to get into is Lamar Jackson, who had the game of his life last week against Miami. And I think it's two things. First off, expecting games to be of similar quality to what he produced last week is not realistic. He played the Miami Dolphins. He had a perfect uh, quarterback rating. That's not happening every week. But what is true and what is reality is Lamar Jackson is an improved quarterback and quite frankly was not as bad as people had thought that he was last year, including myself. You know, if you look at Warren Sharp, his pieces, his um, segments on broadcast um, or podcast um, shows, Lamar Jackson was a good quarterback last year. His playoff outing was terrible, yes, but he was a good quarterback last year. Last week, he was a very, very good quarterback without even really making a difference running the ball. What the Ravens did, I wasn't too crazy about the Ravens coming into the year, even though they had a great offseason, but the Ravens did with that offense, first off, Lamar with some improvement, but they surrounded him with players that fit his skill set. Explosive, big play wide receiver in Hollywood Brown. In the third round, Miles Boykin, a steady, um, surefire, pound the ball uh, running back in Mark Ingram. Justice Hill is a nice compliment. The Gus Bus, Gus Edwards is still there. You have Mark Andrews and Nick Boyle who are um, safe, safety blanket, short yard, uh, short pass targets. Defensively, they went with the mindset of valuing pass coverage more than the pass rush. Uh, value getting comp picks in. So their pass rush is worse than it was last year. This is a nice team they have. I don't know if they're a playoff team. Maybe I'm just down on them more than others. But I like what I saw from Lamar Jackson last week. How could you not? What Hollywood Brown put up last week, and this is something I kind of thought with fantasy. He was the top guy in a lot of people's waiver wires. That's not replicable week to week. Uh, I mean, he'll have games where he goes off and has massive amount of big plays. But every week, he's not putting up the numbers he did last week. Uh, He kind of is like a new version of Deshaun Jackson to me. Uh, But this Ravens offense, it's exciting. I'm excited to watch them moving forward. Now I want to get into, if you've listened to my podcast before, if you've listened on this radio show before, you know I am all in on the process, whether it's in basketball or football or baseball or whatever. 
I did the last podcast episode here of After the Final Whistle, I did about the Miami Dolphins with Laramie Tunsil with their whole process and where they're at now. Last week, they went out there and they got absolutely destroyed by the Ravens. Was I surprised that they got beat badly? No. To that extent, that was a bit surprising. Now, the worst, now here's what's come out of it the Minka Fitzpatrick trade request that came out late last night. Now, I pin this on the coaching staff there because Minka Fitzpatrick was the 11th overall pick in the draft in 2018. And I remember before the season started, when I was doing uh, that last podcast episode, which you can check out on Apple Podcasts or on podcast.com, when I did that episode, I remember they put out a um, like a media depth chart, right? And it had Minka Fitzpatrick listed as a number two strong safety. I was like, hmm, that's a little bit weird. The thing with Fitzpatrick is this. He is, in a way, a Swiss Army knife, right? He can play at a very high level, one of the best you can find in the slot corner spot. He can play strong safety, and if you want him to, he can play corner on the outside also. Where he's best off is as a slot corner, and that's not debatable. We knew that in the draft process. We saw it last year. He had a good rookie year last year. He is a beast as a slot corner. He played safety last week. He played corner last week, outside and inside, and he played in the box as a linebacker. You know, you're kind of big-hitting safety uh, safety linebacker guy, which is not him. That's just not him. He's 215, 220 pounds. And I think there wasn't really consistency in his role. You know, if I think to me, in an ideal situation, if you have Minka Fitzpatrick on your defense, there's really only two spots that are worth playing him in. I'd play him at slot corner as much as I could because that is where he is most effective and he is most talented at by far. And then I'd play him a little bit at safety also. I wouldn't mess that in that playing him at a sort of pseudo linebacker spot, playing him in the box, that's stupid. And playing him as an outside corner, I, I don't think you need to do that. So going through all those four areas, uh, linebacker, outside corner, inside corner, and safety, I don't think that was necessary. I know they like the Swiss Army Knife aspect of him, but keeping him exclusive to mostly slot corner with a little bit of safety should have been the game plan with him. And like I said, I pin that on the coaching staff. Uh, Playing him all over the place, not really having a set role, that was something that had been talked about even by his mother during training camp. And uh, the thing that Miami has to be aware of And again, I'm still all in on the tank. I'm all in on the fish tank. I'm all in on the Dolphins process. 100% the right move to do. In a couple years, it'll pay the dividends that we saw or have seen with the Browns and we have seen with the Sixers, Um, even though the Sixers should be better had they not gotten rid of Sam Hinkie. Different story. But half the battle when you're doing the process is managing perception. If your GM does not put himself out there and speak, if you... Um, allow local media to really run with this narrative because that's what's going to happen is local media is going to cling on to this negative narrative and make a lot of stories about it because it's an easy story to do and it tugs on what the emotions in the short term are of the fan base. Um, But you take this guy, Minka Fitzpatrick, 11th overall pick last year in 2018, first game into his second year due to the team getting destroyed and the coaching staff not playing him in a situation that he felt was optimal for him. It's one thing to get destroyed to that extent. I don't think that's a big deal. I mean, a lot of people 
there's a lot of outcry about it. I don't think it's a big deal. It really doesn't matter. If you make the conference championship game in four years, does it matter how you did in week one, three years before that? No, it doesn't. But it's a bad look to have what should be, and I did in this last podcast, I mentioned the long-term pieces on this team. Minka Fitzpatrick should be a lock as a long-term piece for this team. Chris Greer, the GM, valued him very highly rather than trading down as desired by owner Stephen Ross. He stayed there at 11 and he picked Minka Fitzpatrick. And now the coaching staff has upset him to the point where he wants to request a trade and has been granted permission to seek one. It's a bad look when you have the new coach who's shepherding this process not fulfill the desires of what should be the second most valuable long-term building block on this team. There's no reason that Minka Fitzpatrick should be thinking these things and wanting to be out. because Not because of them losing, but because of his role on the team. You look at the defense, right? I mentioned last week, Xavier Howard, Minka Fitzpatrick, Jerome Baker. Those are guys you play in their roles and you keep developing them and you improve them because those are long-term keepers and building blocks for this team. And Christian Wilkins also. You don't mess around with Jamal Wiltz as a slot corner. You don't mess around... Um, with Fitzpatrick at safety and corner and play him at linebacker. No, you just play him at slot corner and you play him at safety and you keep his role consistent and you develop him in those roles so when you're contending and good, your 11th overall pick who's supremely talented can contribute at a high level. And they didn't do that. And within a game of their second year, now they're going to probably have to trade Fitzpatrick. And looking at what the market for him would be, they would want to get a first-round pick. Of course, they spent the 11th overall pick on him last year. I don't think they're getting a first-round pick for Minka Fitzpatrick. To me, I would assume they'd be able to get... They traded a second and a fifth for Josh Rosen. I think that's probably what they'd be able to get back for Fitzpatrick. And, of course, it's great for them to amass as much draft capital as they can, but in this instance, it's better to have Minka Fitzpatrick and it's not close. I really don't think, you know, we have to think about it with the trade deadline for the NFL coming up in a couple weeks. A first round pick to me, I don't see that coming. And for the Dolphins, it'll have to become a matter of, is it such an uh, unsalvageable situation that they just have to take the best second round pick that they can get for him? If I was them, you have to make the first effort to salvage this because Minka Fitzpatrick has to be a long term piece for this team. To have essentially gotten nothing out of the 11th overall pick and a year later have traded him for a second and a fifth, that would be a really bad look for a team who's going to have to fight half the battle here when you do the process, which is managing perception. Managing perception is what kills you when you do the process. Ask Sam Hinkie. Ask Sashi Brown. The perception destroys. And having that perception accentuated by a very valuable piece wanting out so quickly does not do you any favors. It's a really bad look for the Dolphins. It's a big mistake for them also, who in my mind, to this point, had consistently otherwise been making good, smart decisions. There's no decision or tactic to this point that I looked at and said, hey, that wasn't that smart, or "Eh, that was probably the wrong move. I I, I guess not starting Josh Rosen right away maybe falls into that. Actually, not maybe, it does. That's the only one I disagree with. Rosen should have been starting right away to see what you have in him. But that and this, this Minka Fitzpatrick is a bad look. And 
I really wonder who will trade for Fitzpatrick. Lots of interesting teams out there could potentially want him. I'm really interested to see if they do trade him, where he goes. I think if they are willing, once they realize it's not salvageable to trade him and uh, recognize that they won't get a first-round pick for him, I think many teams would be interested in trading their second for a guy in his second year who's proven to be a very good slot corner who would have to be paid very, very little by the team that acquires him in a trade. Again, the process is still 100% the right move and uh, process and path for them to have taken. Short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. The fans always come back when the teams start to win. They always do. This is just a really bad look and is a negative for when they ultimately contend in the future because this was supposed to be a big part of that contending team. All right, moving away from football now, I want to get into the NBA here. Uh, And one thing that's been really interesting to me uh, with the NBA is every year, as usual, coming up in um, October, you have the deadline for the um, rookie extensions, right? The guys who were in their last year, their rookie deal, who after the year will be a restricted free agent, and there's that deadline for when they can... um, sign the extension for their second contract. And the name that really intrigues me the most out of this entire uh, group of extension-eligible players who have not signed it yet, by far, is Jalen Brown. Third overall pick in 2016 by the Celtics. I think he's an incredibly interesting case with his situation and his potential second contract slash extension because I don't think that Boston and Brown are going to come to an extension agreement by that deadline. I don't think that I really don't at all. I don't think there's any chance. Uh, You know, it's been said there really hasn't been much traction in that direction with him getting an extension or them talking about an extension. Um, And I also, it's also interesting to think what exactly do you value Jalen Brown at contract-wise, is he a 4-for-90 guy? Is he a 4-for-80 guy? Is he a 4-for-70 guy? I think that a lot of people would have lots of different stances on that. So I think he's an interesting player because I don't think it's really easy to um, put a finger on exactly what it is that his value is as far as um, the amount of money he should get over that four-year extension. I don't think the Celtics know either. I think the Celtics are in the mode of, hey, go out there. Have a better year than you did last year, and then we'll pay you after the season. Um, but even still, I think, and this is something that was said on the Zach Lowe, or on the low post with Bill Simmons, with Zach Lowe and Bill Simmons, the idea of a Demodis Sabonis for Jalen Brown trade. Because it makes sense from a positional fit and a roster construction sense for both teams. Sabonis in the same situation as Jalen Brown, last year of his rookie deal up for his second contract slash extension. We look at Indiana, and I've said this before on multiple podcasts and on Twitter, at BradClear underscore. Indiana with Miles Turner and Demontis Sabonis as their front court. That duo just will not work. It cannot work. Two bigs playing together, it just won't work. It's not going to work. They have to realize that. And if you, you you can't pay Demontis Sabonis a second contract. You can't. 
because then you trap yourself into playing Turner with Sabonis, which long-term is not a positive. And you just drafted Goga Batadze, who I really, really like, who can very well be your backup uh, big off the bench. I think Batadze is going to be a quality player, a quality of player, where he's an NBA starter level player. And you'll have him as your number two big behind Miles Turner, who is on that big uh, four-year, $72 million contract with incentives that can get it up to $80 million. And he took the leap last year, so I think that contract before he took that leap, I wasn't crazy about it. But now that he took that leap, I'm fine with that contract. That's a, that's a different point, though. Um, but the ideal roster construction for this team, you'd see Miles Turner playing at the five, and you'd have a stretch four type next to him, like a Thaddeus Young, who they let walk this offseason. That's the optimal front court pairing for this team. Not Miles Turner and Demodis Sabonis. And like I said, you paid Demata Sabonis his second contract, whatever that number is over those four years, and you're committing yourself to playing the two bigs together and you're trapped in that duo and you're not going to maximize your success if that's your front court duo. We look at Indiana's options at the three, right? Once Victor Oladipo is healthy, which I don't really think people really have a grasp on, and I don't think that people or recognizing the extent to which Indiana will not be as good of a team while Oladipo is out. I think that Indiana is being a little bit overrated for this year. I think they got slightly worse over this offseason, as I've said before on podcasts and on Twitter. But we look we look at their options at the three, right? They're Jeremy Lamb, they're Justin Holiday, and they're Doug McDermott. With Oladipo playing in back at the two, those are your three best options at the three. Your best option at the three in Jeremy Lamb is a guy who's best off playing at the two. Justin Holiday, they got for the uh, room exception. Nice player. That's like your eighth. It's like your eighth man in the rotation. Doug McDermott, a situational three-point shooter. So, your options at the three. I mean, I like Jeremy Lamb and I like Justin Holiday, but as my two best options as my at the three, that that's not that great. It's really not. And. You can never have enough versatile, uh, athletic, plus defenders who can defend across multiple positions, who can also shoot threes on the wing. You can never have enough of those wings in the NBA. The modern NBA, you need as many of those as you possibly can. And Indiana doesn't really have any of those. They don't. You have TJ Warren, and then you have Lamb, Holiday, and McDermott. At the three, Warren as a four. You don't really have that type of player on this Indiana team. And I think that they have a need for that type of player. Now, if you look at Boston, Boston does not have a long-term answer at the five. They don't have a long-term piece as far as a big for this team moving forward is concerned. They got Ennis Cantor in at the room exception. Daniel Tice, Robert Williams, and Vincent. I'm going to butcher the last name here. Vincent Poirier as well. So those are their four bigs for this year. Um, Poirier signed for next year. Also, Cantor, I think, is a player option for that second year. But the point is, is that none of those players are long-term solutions for them at the five. Now, I acknowledge that the five and a big as a whole, they're easier to find year to year in free agency um, for a one or two year period. They can play and they can start and they can produce at a sufficient level for a playoff team for that one or two years. Um, you look at this offseason alone, right? 
Ed Davis, Robin Lopez, and his canter, Kyle O'Quinn, who is a minimum player, and Rashawn Holmes. Lots of bigs available year in and year out that you can sign in free agency for not really that much. And they can produce sufficiently so that you get good production out of the five for that one or two years you have that player. So Boston can go into the offseason each year and find temporary solutions year to year. Um, they can hope that Robert Williams becomes, you know, that above-the-rim, rim-protecting uh, two-way player. They also have the likely unprotected first from Minnesota in 2021. And for all we know, maybe that pick ends up becoming someone who is a big, who is a talented big that can be the long-term answer. Um, but right now, looking at this team, from a positional and roster construction sense, Sabonis and Brown, it, it has some merit to it. Because Boston, you know, you have Tatum, you have Brown, Gordon Hayward as well. I am not someone who believes in the uh, Gordon Hayward return to form thing. I really don't. I think he is what he is at this point, unfortunately. If I was Boston, I would not do this trade. I think Jalen Brown... To me, I think Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are both primed for big bounce-back seasons, especially in Tatum's case, but in Brown's case also. And I think that having a player like Jalen Brown on your team for the long term and the playoffs, that's very, very valuable. Having Tatum and Brown together, I love that. So I would not do this if I was Boston, but it still makes sense. It still is something that logically fits for both teams. Um, you'd get Indiana, that major long-term presence at the three, that versatile uh, multi-positional defender who's athletic, who can shoot threes that you can never have enough of in the NBA, and you get Boston, a long-term solution at the five. Now, I think Demata Sabonis is a starting-level player at the five. Is he someone who possesses you know the upside to be a you know really, really, really good near all-star at the five? No, he's not. Um, Jalen Brown, is he someone who can get to that level? I think that answer would vary based off the person you asked that question to. Um, but the point is, is Brown has the greater upside. He has a more valuable player prototype and ultimately has more value. So if that trade were to happen, you'd have to have some stuff in addition to Sabonis going from Indiana to Boston. But it's just interesting to float that trade in your mind because... It has some merit. It makes sense positionally for both teams. They're both young players in the same position with their second contract coming up. It's just an interesting thought. I lean, again, towards not doing that because Brown is more valuable, but you could justify it from Boston, uh, from Boston's side, and really it's a no-brainer from Indiana's side. Now, what I think the most likely outcome is with this is that Brown plays out the year with Boston. Like I said, I think they're going to have him play out the year and they'll pay him after the year based off the season he has. So I think the likely outcome is Brown plays out the year with Boston without getting an extension. Now, the key for Boston, though, is if Jalen Brown gets to restricted free agency without having signed a second contract with the Celtics, I look at the Atlanta Hawks, who have over $70 million in cap space for the 2020 summer who have Trey Young, have John Collins, and have a nice mix of that type of wing I was talking about, the guys who can shoot threes, who are athletic, versatile, good size, and can defend against multiple positions, or across multiple positions. 
Kevin Herter, DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish. Brown fits the timeline. He adds him a nice, valuable wing that fits that prototype as well. So you'd have your playmaking Trey Young, who you have to compensate for on defense at all times. And then you'd have four wings who can play good to um, very good defense across multiple positions who can all shoot, who are all athletic. And then you'd have John Collins also. So to me, if Jalen Brown gets to restricted free agency, Boston might be putting themselves in trouble because I definitely see Atlanta giving a nice, sizable offer sheet to Brown very quickly. It would make all the sense in the world. So I think from Boston's side, they got to get the second contract done with Brown. And I, I think the idea of waiting until after the season to see how he plays is fine. If he plays incredible and you got to give him more money, fine. He's playing great for your team. Your team is better because of it. But they cannot let him get to restricted free agency because then they'll be paying more than they want because of the offer sheet that I think would likely come Brown's way from Atlanta. Um, quick aside related to Atlanta and the 2020 summer, this is something I didn't see talked about a lot, but I thought of pretty quickly after uh, his extension was signed. Draymond Green signed that four-year $100 million extension with Golden State, um, structures that he gets a lot of those payments uh, very early on each year. If he made it to unrestricted free agency in 2020, I think he would have ended up on the Atlanta Hawks. I think the Hawks, with the president of basketball operations, Travis Schlenk, formerly with Golden State for all those years, they would have pounced on Draymond Green. So if he had made it to free agency, Atlanta would have made a huge play for him, I think. But it's a moot point now because he re-signed with Golden State. Um, but yeah, it's just an interesting thought exercise to think of Jalen Brown and Sabonis uh, with where those two players are with their contracts and with where those teams are with their roster composition. Now, even if this trade is not something that's realistic, Indiana has to move Demonis Sabonis regardless because they cannot saddle themselves with two bigs making a lot of money who cannot and should not be playing next to each other. They're going into the season with the idea of playing them together, which I think is dumb. They, I remember at the draft, once they drafted Goga Batadze, my initial reaction was, all right, I guess they're trading Demata Sabonis now. Who's gonna, who are they going to trade Sabonis to? What are they going to get for him? But then Kevin Pritchard said they're going to play him together. Regardless, they have to move him. And I think it's interesting because... I mean, it's just trying to figure out a way that you can trade Sabonis and get back a piece who can be a wing at the three in that kind of, you know, versatile three-point shooting defensive archetype or a stretch four type in just a one-for-one trade. I think it's really kind of interesting and uh, difficult to figure out where exactly that match is. That's why the Brown trade makes a lot of sense as a hypothetical. Um, Moving away from there... This is recent news uh, from the other night, um, I believe from Wednesday night. Um, Nene, who opted out of the third year of that contract he signed with the Rockets, went unsigned for the majority of the summer. Rockets finally signed him to what is such a really interesting and unique contract. And my nerdy salary cap interests are really in full force here with this contract. Um, Nene, on that two-year deal for $20 million, um, the guarantees solely are the base salary at the minimum. And there's $7.5 million in what are deemed, based off the Rockets' success last year uh, and Nene's status last year, these bonuses are deemed likely bonuses. 
Um, those are seven point five million, in addition to the minimum, um, which gets him to ten million dollars in salary. Now, Houston, these bonuses are based off of Houston's win totals and the amount of games that Nene plays. So Houston more or less has the ability to control um, the ability that Nene has to hit these deemed likely bonuses um, for this year. And really what's the most valuable thing here is if Houston wanted to trade Nene, his contract would count for them as $10 million in outgoing salary, which allows them the ability, should they choose to do so in a trade, to take back up to $12.6 million in salary, even though... He only has the minimum contract or the minimum salary guaranteed for this year in his contract. And if he is waived by February 15th, which is only a couple days after the trade deadline, his entire 2020-2021 salary is completely uh, cleared. So more or less, the idea here is you could trade Nene to a team for a player who makes up to $12.6 million in salary. That team could waive Nene. Um, save a ton of money, and Houston gets in a player um, because of a really interesting loophole in Nene's contract. Um, it really gives Houston such an interesting, unique trade chip at their disposal, but the caveat here, Houston has had a clear unwillingness to pay the tax, and that clear unwillingness to pay the tax has really, uh, even though they're still a very, very good, great team, they could and should be better than they are had they be had they been willing and would they be willing to pay the tax you know not using the mid-level exception last year this year they of all teams had the greatest ability to go out there and trade for Andre Iguodala you have Amon Shumpert who's still sitting out there as a free agent you have his bird rights when you sign and trade for a player the player signing the new contract has to have three years in his contract so you signed him on Shumpert for three years at the minimum salary that's needed to match salaries with Iguodala's salary, non-guarantee years two and three. You trade Shumpert and a top 20 protected first in 2022. You trade that to Memphis. You get Iguodala in. Now you've basically gotten Andre Iguodala for nothing but a first round pick um, that wouldn't convey until 2022. That would have made them significantly better. And with Daryl Morey as your GM, if he had the ability uh, to pay the tax, I can bet you he'd be making moves like that. But between that, between the mid-level exception, between making that James Ennis trade last year, the deadline, just giving him up in more or less a salary dump, and he became an integral part of the Sixers bench, now re-signed with the Sixers, they dumped him so they could get under the tax. They traded Brandon Knight's contract um, with a first-round pick attached to it, last year to get under the tax. It's clear that this team is not going to pay the tax. So to me, it's really a moot point as far as how much salary Nene's contract can bring in, unless it's combined with other salaries in a trade that keeps them under the tax, because they're so close to that apron right now that just taking Nene and trading him for up to 12.6 million salary for this team, I don't think that's realistic. What's realistic would be combining him with other salary in that type of trade that still keeps them under the tax. Um, them not making that silver platter, sign chumper, trade him for Iguodala trade, it bothers me so much. That team could be adding Iguodala right now, not giving away anything that impacts how good their team is now, 
and improving significantly because Iguodala is the perfect player for this team. Bothers me so much that they're not willing to make that trade uh, because of the tax. Um, but it's just an interesting wrinkle there with that Nene contract. Just an interesting little contract. Very creative uh, use of the likely bonuses by Houston in re-signing Nene. So, 6.30 here on WSOE, or if you're listening after the fact on iTunes or on podcast.com. Um, again, if you are listening on WSOE, I know this week only about a half hour, but I will be on every week from 6 to 7 p.m. here on Fridays on WSOE. If you are a regular listener of the show on podcast.com or iTunes, expect the show to go up around 7.15, 7.20, 7.30 each Friday moving forward. Again, I'm Brad Clear, the host here of After the Final Whistle. You can follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to Nene's contract. Shout out to the NFL. Shout out to the Miami Dolphins trusting the process. Again, I'm Brad Clear. And as always, goodbye and good night.